following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Our By Faith series, here we are. We had an introduction last week, and we mentioned that there are five reasons why we're going. We're going to spend two months in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, just one chapter. Uh, really, just a handful of verses, we're going to spend two months. And why are we doing that? Um, it's so important. Hebrews 11 offers this list, right? Uh, a, really, a long list of people, a catalog of people that have lived by faith and been commended by God. Men and women alike that have been commended by God for the lives that they live. And they're rewarded. And, and that's our very purpose in life, to, to know God's will, to obey His will, to enjoy Him, and to receive His reward. And so we want to come together and really ask ourselves, uh, what does the Bible say about how we are to go about doing that? How do we live our life by faith? How do we enjoy God? How do we know what He desires for us? And how do we receive that reward that He's promised to us? And those are just all really exciting things. And I hope that these stories that we go week to week uh, will inspire you and comfort you and hopefully change, change us um, to live our lives with genuine faith. And so where we're going to start tonight is really no better place to start than the very beginning. The very first children that have ever lived. Uh, the story of Cain and Abel. And Hebrews 11 starts in that very same place. And it teaches us something about what it means to really worship God. And what better place to start talking about faith than starting to talk about worship. Um, and that's where we're going to start. So first... Um, we're going to read uh, Genesis chapter 4, the story, the background story, and then we're going to hop to Hebrews chapter 11. And so you can go to Genesis chapter 4 with me. I'll read that first. Uh, you can put your thumb in Hebrews 11 if you'd like, and then, and then go back to Genesis 4. I'm going to start in, in verse 1 in Genesis 4. Now Adam, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Let's go to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The issue that Cain and Abel here, that we're going to look at, is one of worship. And, you know, worship's a word that maybe it may evoke many different thoughts and images. And it's, I'm not going to talk about music and its, 
uh, real general sense, like ascribing greatness to something, you know, uh, saying this is something worthwhile, this is something valuable. And I'm not going to talk so much specifically like worship in certain components, like, uh, like music, like singing, like offering. Um, but I, I want to talk more in uh, kind of in the middle of the road, like our daily living out, our daily functioning as people of faith, um, as God's creation in a way that honors him. And so when I talk about worship, and I think what, what Abel teaches us here is how to live our life daily, living out the proper way to, uh, to live as, as creation to creator, as, as people to God, as an act of worship. And although Abel is dead, this passage says that even though he's dead, he continues to teach us about faith. And he teaches us many things in this story. Isn't that amazing that though he is dead, his, his legacy still lives on, he still teaches us every single day. And so the question that I ask myself and want to ask you all here tonight is, what is he teaching about? If, he is still, if he's dead and, and though he still teaches, well, he's got something to say to us. And that's what I hope that we can hear. And so what I'm going to do is um, I want to give three implications. In your bulletin, you can kind of follow along here. Uh, I want to give three implications of faith. And that's really answering the question, what does this story teach us about a life of faith? All these stories are going to teach us about some kind of aspect of faith. And so we're going to look at the life of Abel, ask the question, what does it teach us about faith? And secondly, I want to give four applications of faith. And that's answering the question, how do we respond? Right? What does it teach us, and what are we going to do about it? Um, so we've got seven, seven main points um, you should be very happy when I started this draft. My first draft was 20 points. Uh, and then I whittled it down to 10 and then 8 and then finally came up with 7. These are the 7. Uh, I, I couldn't cut any more. Um, we need these. They're good things that are uh, going to teach us really great things. Uh, so first, let's go to the implications. One, what does the life of Abel teach us about faith? Uh, the first thing is living by faith is neither, it's not easy or simple. Living by faith is not easy or simple. Um, when thinking about faith, sometimes it's, it's easy to look at, and look at it and say, well, how hard can it really be? Uh, that word is thrown around a lot, isn't it? Faith. Live by faith. Just have faith. And faith almost has this idea that it's, it's actually something that you can just grab and live by. And it's really something really easy. Just live by faith. How hard could it really be? And I think the story of Cain and Abel shows us that it's actually very difficult. It's not simple. It's not easy. Uh, take the idea of love, for instance. I don't have to convince you that love, loving somebody, is, is not simple nor easy. It's, it's difficult. It requires endurance. It requires, requires patience. requires a lot of help, a lot of, a lot of steadfastness, a lot of forgiveness. I mean, loving somebody is very, very difficult. Um, you don't have to be married to know that. You don't have to have children to know that. Just loving people in general is something that is not an easy task. If it were, if love were something very easy, uh, our world would look very, very different. Our marriages would look different. Our homes would look different. Our, our country would look different. The world would be a very different place. If loving somebody was very easy to do, uh, children wouldn't come from, um, from damaged homes. We would all have wonderful stories uh, to, to tell each other about how wonderful our families were growing up. And, but, but it's not that way. Love is very difficult. And often the idea of faith, Christian faith, is, is misunderstood. When something goes wrong, maybe a friend's come up to you and say, and they, you may be able to finish this sentence, and they're having a hard time, you go up to them and say, you know what, you, you just have to have faith. Just let go and let God. Let go and let God, right? Just have faith. 
Just let go. Oh, just free fall. If you back away and do nothing, God will take the wheel and life will be good. Right? So there's this kind of this misunderstanding about faith that it's something easy and simple. And the story of Abel teaches us something very different. It's actually very difficult and very hard. Uh, think of God's faithfulness to us, for instance. And surely now when we see God's faithfulness, we realize that it's very involved, very proactive, very aggressive, very real. Um, when we want God to be faithful to us, we're not asking him to, God, just, just let go and let yourself. I mean, just let go and things will be as if they're, they're, they always should be. But when we ask God to be faithful, we're asking God, we're saying, God, do something. Pursue me. Pursue your promise. Pursue your righteousness. Pursue your faithfulness. Engage in my life. So when we say, God, would you be faithful to us? We're saying, would you be involved in my life? Would you care for me? And so faith is something that is not simple or easy and definitely not something that we just step back and say, I just got to let God handle this. Faith is something that we engage in, that we pursue, that we are aggressive with, that we have endurance for. It's something, it's really important to know that. And so I hope that as we start learning about what faith is and how it applies to our life, first and foremost, we look at this and say, okay, this is something that I'm actually involved in. Faith is something that I don't just step back and let happen in my life. It's something that I'm aggressively involved in. Scripture, throughout Scripture, it calls us to endurance, to diligence, to patience, to self-control. Cain is encouraged to overcome sin. It's a battle. It's not an easy one. But a discipline for the brave. Faith is literally a matter of life and death, as we've seen with Cain and Abel. And this faith is so personal. Association with faith, another thing that Abel teaches us, that association with faith is not, or association with people who have faith is not uh, guarantee our faithfulness, does it? If you grow up in a family of, of maybe believers, of Christians, that doesn't mean that you will grow up as a person that lives by faith, does it? Cain and Abel, the only two kids in the world, grow up, same parents. One of them lives a life very different than the other. And so just hanging around people, even just going to church and spending time with people of faith, doesn't mean that this faith is something that belongs to you, something that's personal. Just because you enter into conversations with, with people about Christianity, about faith, doesn't mean that this is something that you've owned and something that belongs to you. It's something that we've learned about this story. It's easy to grow up and see what your friend or sibling's doing and say, you know, I'll have what he's having, I'll have what she's having. Yeah, that sounds good, that's, that's who I am. And there must come a time when your faith and my faith uh, is not wrapped up completely in just a corporate identity, but becomes something very personal to us. And I hope that you see that, I hope that you've experienced that in your life. That you say, you know what, this may have been the faith of my parents, but there was a point, a breaking point in my life where now this is something that I've had to own personally. And I encourage you to, to seek that out. This brings us to our second thing, our second implication of the story, is that true faith has enemies. True faith has enemies. C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, says this. He says, there are two errors about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The enemy of faith is sin. And, and sin is depicted in our story as a crouching lion right? It is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But look at where the lion is. 
This is great. I love this imagery. Look at where the lion is. So the enemy, sin, temptation, is depicted as a, as a wild animal. Where is this animal? It would make sense that it would be off some in far distant place, like in the Serengeti, in the tall grass, crouching down in the grass, in, in a foreign land, someplace far, far away from your life. But where is this crouching lion hiding? It says it's at the door. At whose door? At, at your door. It's at your front door. It's at your home. It's at places that are familiar to you. See, sin and temptation finds us not in weird places that, hey, don't go to that place because there's sin there. Sin meets us in familiar places, in the routine, in, in our life every single day. It meets us in those areas that are comfortable, that we would go to for comfort and, and rest. It's at our front door. And it's almost like, you know, you picture this, it rings the doorbell and, and you look through the peephole and you don't see anything and you're like, well, surely it can't be a problem. And you open the door and it's there crouching, just waiting to take you over. And you feel safe within your house, but not very far away, there's something very dangerous. What does the lion want to do? This is what I like as well. It says, you know, it doesn't, you'd think it wants to eat you, but it doesn't want to eat you. It doesn't want to kill you. What does the lion want to do? It says, God says, its desire is for you. What does that mean? What does it mean? Its desire is for you. It could mean that it desires to eat you for lunch, but I think it means something a little different than that. God uses this almost this exact phrase in chapter 3 when describing the relationship between the, the authority struggle between the husband and the wife. Now look at this. Just, just hear these words. In Genesis 3, verse 16, God is talking to Eve. And she says this, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And what that means is God is telling Eve, because of sin, there will come times in your life where you will want to usurp your husband's leadership overtake his leadership, his spiritual leadership that God has given him as the head of the family, as the head of this relationship, there will be times when you don't want him to do that and you will want to take over and take over authority and take over leadership that God has called him to have in the family as the spiritual head, as the husband. And the wife in that situation doesn't want to kill her husband. Well, maybe she does at some times. But this isn't what it's talking about. She, she, she does not want to kill him. She just wants to control him. She wants to manage him. She wants to say, I'm in charge. Do what I say. Look at Genesis 4-7. Now God is talking to Cain. And what does he say? Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I don't think it's a coincidence that those two phrases are almost identical the same Hebrew words, the sentence structure is almost exact. And what does it mean? It means that sin desires to have control of your life. It desires to have authority in your life. It desires to guide and direct and move you where it wants to be. Sin desires not to just kill you right now and put you out of your misery. It desires to inhabit your life, control you, and make everything miserable. It's desires to be worshipped. And that's not what God desires. God says to Cain, you must kill sin. You must rule over it. You must overtake it. 
You must manage it. And what does Cain do? He kills his brother. Cain, kill sin. I th- okay. And he goes out and kills his brother. So there's, there's something going on here that sin was wanting to do, wanting to manage him. And this is what sin does. It takes something good and it uses it for something bad. God says, Cain, get aggressive. And sin says, Cain, you should get aggressive. And, the, and, he, and he directs it towards something that's not good. Be aggressive. Go and, and show your anger. God wants Cain to show his anger towards sin, towards that temptation. Instead, he shows it towards his brother. Perfect example. Think about the relationship that God has given us uh, in Scripture as he talks about an intimate relationship, a relationship of sex and desire, of passion, of intimacy. That these things are by God. These are God's design. These are good things. What does sin want it to do? It wants to take those good things and say, do this with it. Do this instead. Here God says, I want you to get angry, but I want you to get angry towards sin. And sin takes that and directs it somewhere else. You see, in everything that we're doing, we're either worshiping God or we are being managed by sin. Everything. Whether, whether you're at home, whether you're with your roommates, whether you're at school, whether you're at work, whether you're in your neighborhood, you're in your social encounters, whatever you're doing, you're in a place where you're either worshiping God or you're being managed by sin. How can we know the difference? Understanding this third implication will help us. Look at the third one. God is a picky God. God is a picky God. Now, what on earth do I mean by this? God is a picky God. You know, like he just is like hard to shop for. I mean, what does this mean that God is just like really picky? <clears throat> does the story of Abel give us some insight? Is, you know, does it mean that the story, this story, well, God's picky about how we worship him. Does it mean like contemporary worship? Does it mean like really traditional worship? Does it mean you're allowed to use a piano or not? I mean, no, that's not what this is talking about. Look at it real, look at real close at the text. Cain and Abel come to bring their gifts to God as an act of worship. And verse 4 says this in, in Hebrews, uh, Genesis, Genesis uh, 4, verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Look at this connection here. There's something really important connection going on between these two passages. There's a really tight relationship between the gift that someone gives and the giver who's giving that gift. What does God say? The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he didn't have regard for. In God's mind, when he sees us worship him and the gifts that we bring, whether it's our time, our talents, our treasure, our hearts, the gift is an extension of the person. And they're not separate. And this is a very important connection. When we come to offer something to Christ in worship, we ourselves are being evaluated. It is impossible to come before God with a gift and say, look at the nice thing that I brought you. And to expect that God is not going to look into our heart and evaluate us. How scary is that? That when we come to God, God is going to peer into our hearts and say, let me take a look inside. Don't do that. Look at the nice thing that I brought you. Look at the really nice gift. Look at the song that I'm singing. I'm singing it. It's, it's, I, I've really been tried hard. Look at the money that I've given. Look at the time that I'm spending. Look at the Bible reading that I've been doing all the time. Look at those gifts. But we can't do that without God looking into our heart and saying, let me take a look and evaluate you 
Isn't that scary? Who of us would be prepared to go before God and say, take a look, you'll find no blame, you'll find no blemish, you'll find no sin. He tells Cain in verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? See what he did here? First it said, he looked at Cain and his gift and had no regard. Then he went to Cain and said, Cain, if you do what is right, don't you know that you will be accepted? You see what he did there? He dropped the gift, and now he's talking to Cain. He's not saying, you know, if you do right, I'm going to like your gift. No, he says, now I'm talking about you. It used to be about Cain's gift, now it's just about him. It's like God is saying, Cain, let's forget about this gift thing for a moment. There's something deeper going on inside of your heart that I want to address. And isn't that the truth a lot of times when we're angry about something, when we're frustrated about something? You don't, you know, I could use it a marriage analogy, but I don't need to because we all have those kinds of relationships where we get upset about something, whatever it is, something impractical, practical, whatever. And yet it seems so out of proportion how we react to it that there's, someone comes to us and says, there's something else going on. There's something else really going on. I don't think you hate dirty dishes that bad. Right? There's something going on. I, I really don't think that, you know, I'm, that it's just about that thing that happened. And that's what God's doing with Cain. He brings a gift and God says, I want to talk about who you are and what, what I see inside of you. And that's what we need to look at. We need to realize that when we come to worship God, we can't trick God. We can't bring him a gift and something really nice and say, look at what I did for you, God. I'm really excited about it. Your gift is an extension of the heart. I want to look at Romans chapter 3. And I've got this verse up on the board because I want to look at it for a second. Who of us can approach God? Here's the question. Who of us can approach God and be evaluated? And when we've been evaluated, we can be approved and accepted for who we are. Let's look at Romans chapter 3. Do we have that? Sweet. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This description of a person looks a lot like the person, one of the people in our story, doesn't it? Just look at this. Now, this is one of the optimistic passages in Scripture, by the way. <laughs> no, this isn't, make a, this isn't meant to make us feel all that great. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Cain was rejected as worthless, right? Look at the first, none is righteous, no, not one. None, no one's righteous. Cain came to God and God says, I, I don't accept you. Throat is an open grave. When God came to Cain and questioned him about his brother, he said, I don't, I'm not in charge of my brother. There's this attitude of bitterness, this attitude of scorn, this attitude of, I don't care what's going on. Look at this, his feet are swift to shed blood. Our passage says that Cain 
in his anger, quickly went out and met his brother and killed him. There's no fear of God, this passage says. When confronted with his sin, Cain did not have any remorse. He didn't have a problem with it. He made excuses. He got angry. This passage in Romans 3 is a lot like Cain. These qualities are a lot like that passage that we saw in Genesis chapter 4. And the Bible says, in Romans 3 here, Paul is saying, we are a lot like that. So the Bible says that you and I are a lot like Cain. That's not good news. You may be saying to yourself, I'm not like Cain. Consider God's words to Cain. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Is there anything in your past? Is there anything in your present? Is there anything in your heart that when exposed, God would not, would not say, there's something in there that, I don't, that it's not consistent with my character, with my, with my holiness, with my glory? There's something there that is impure. Is there any of us that could say, oh, I've never done anything wrong. I've never, I've never committed any sin against you, God. Paul is saying here in Romans 3, every single one of us is like Cain in some way. And so there's got to be another way that we can worship God and be accepted. Romans 3 continues in verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does this mean? That although each and every one of us are like Cain, that when we look at what the Bible says, what it says to us and to you and me is that you are like Cain. That you have in your life at times, at different times, in what you've said and what you've done and how you've acted and what you've thought, you have, you have come before God and, and been seen as unacceptable. So, the Bible says here, this verse, that although we are like Cain, we can be accepted like Abel. How? He says, by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says this, by faith, Abel's gift was accepted, and he was commended by God. And this message keeps teaching us, even though he has died. Jesus, because faith, if we look at faith in Christ that he died for our Cain-like acts, our Cain-like condition, knowing that I come to you, God, in who I am, and I'm not accepted. But by faith in what Jesus did for me, like Cain, a murderer in my heart, you're going to treat me like Abel. You're going to accept me like Abel. You're going to accept the gifts that I bring like Abel. What a great gift is that? What kind of worship does God desire? This point was, God's a picky God. What does that mean? That there is a certain way that God desires us to come to Him. He doesn't just take anything. As we see in this situation, Abel and Cain brought, and God said, I don't want your gift. So God doesn't take it. So we can't think, you know what, if we just come to church and read the Bible and sing songs, God's going to like it and He's going to be happy with it. And it's not true. We have to come by faith. Real worship in our life and at church and and the real approval that we gain is only gained by faith and nothing else. Who's the hero in this story? Who should we be like? My hero is this message behind, this gracious God. 
my hero is this gracious God that would say to us, I've let you sin against me and still be loved by me. I've let you come to me and I've looked into your heart and I've seen just wickedness and sin. And I have allowed you to still come. And not only that, but I have accepted you. Isn't that, this is the real hero of the story, is the grace of God that none of us deserve. That Cain could come to God and be treated like Abel. And that's how, every, that's how we who live by faith are treated by God. So what really happens when we come to worship God, when we come to worship God by faith, is our deeds are not evaluated. So we come before God and worship by faith. God looks at our heart, and he sees the work of Christ on the cross. And he sees our faith in him. And he accepts us like Abel. And that gift is accepted, and it's enjoyed, and he takes pleasure in it, and we take pleasure in him, and we get to know him better and know what he desires, and we enjoy him more and more. What great confidence that we can have in that. See how early the gospel is preached. From the very beginning, it's preached to who? It's preached to a murderer. It's preached to the worst person on the planet at that time, Cain. And God preached to him. He said, you're wicked, but you can still be approved if you do what is right. Christ did that for us. So how can we be diligent to learn from this kind of faith? How does it translate into our life? How do we live as people that worship God by faith? So here's the applications. One is to discover what God desires. The right approach. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, that if you come to worship God and you come to bring your gift and you know that there's someone in your life that you have not reconciled with, that you hate, that has offended you, and you're not right with this person, what does it say? It says, leave your gift at the altar, go, make it right with this person, reconcile with this person, and then come back and bring your gift. And so even in the New Testament now, we see that Jesus is teaching us the way to worship God that is that our gift is an extension of our heart. So we come to God, we approach God, not just with doing good things and, and doing them in the right order, but we come with our hearts in worship for God. And he desi- that's what he desires. It's like God saying, I desire more that your heart would be right than the good things that you do for me. And in such a case that you come with something very wonderful and pleasant for, to give to me in worship, and there is something wrong with, between a relationship with you and a friend or you and a spouse or you and a roommate, it is more important that you make it right with them then give me the gift. God's saying, I don't need this gift. Right? God is saying, I don't need the gift. God has everything. You know? It's not like God says, I've always wanted that. Thanks for getting that for me. You know, it's like, it's like, what does God do at Christmas? You know, shake the boxes and say, I hope it's one of these things. No. It's like, God doesn't need a clock radio, okay? He has everything. So God's saying, your gift is an extension of your heart, and I want your heart, I want who you are. I don't care about your gift, I have everything. He's not concerned that we do a lot of religious things for him. He desires us. He desires that we would worship by faith. Psalm 51, God wants, so he wants the right approach. He wants us to approach him with a heart that's open. He also wants a a broken heart. Psalm 51 says, You will not delight in a sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are, are a broken heart. David, King David says this in Psalms, A broken heart and a contrite heart you will not despise. So David says this, God, I know that when I come to you and my heart is broken and open and humble before you and trusting in you, you're not going to send me away. Isn't that great? 
So it's in that scary to think that like we can come to God and He might not approve of us. And what does the Bible say? That if we come with a broken heart, a humble heart, He'll not send us away. And He promises that. He won't send you away. What if I come with a broken heart and God doesn't like me? Will He send me away? No. If you come with a broken and contrite heart saying, God, I need you. I need your mercy. I'm wicked. I'm like Cain. I've caused so many sins against you and other people. God's not going to turn us away. And that's great. That's great encouragement. He desires a life that's saturated with repentance, with eyes that look at our heart to uncover anything that keeps us from worshiping in faith. This is something we need to do so daily. Look in our hearts and say, God, is there anything I need to repent of? Number two is worship God in your calling. I love this. I love this. In Genesis chapter 4, there's two guys that grew up with skills and they come to worship God with those skills. We should do the same thing. We need to worship God in our calling. Where are you called right now? Is it to be a student, to be a, 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 mo- a mother, to be a spouse, to be a, a mom, a, a working mom? Is it to be single? Is it to be a student and, and working hard at school? Is it to be a great neighbor or a great friend? What is God calling to you? Where is your sphere of influence right now in your life? The Bible says that we can actually worship God with those things. How can you worship God with your calling where you're called right now? Cain worked in the field with the fruit and the crops. Abel was, worked with the animals. He had the herds and the cattle. And they both brought to God with what they were, what they were called to, to work in. And I think we need to do the same thing. You know the story of the fish with the boy with the, three, the two fish and the five loaves of bread and there was 5,000 people that needed to be fed. And You've heard this story. Is this familiar? Uh, in the Bible, in, in, in John chapter, chapter 6, uh, there's all these people that need to eat and there's this little boy and he's got two fish and five loaves of bread and, 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 and Jesus multiplies that and he feeds everybody that was hungry. And I've heard this sermon so many times and maybe you've heard it as well. And, and, maybe, uh, and when the sermon has, has been preached and the pastor gets to the the end of the application, he says, he says this, this story is about this, that God appreciates everything that we bring, and even the littlest thing that we bring to God, he could, he could use it and, and, and be glorified by it. And I would say to that, yeah, unless you're Cain. Because isn't, isn't that what Cain did? Just bring whatever you have, even if it's little, God will love it. That's not true. Because Cain did that and God hated it. Sorry if you've preached that sermon and had that application. God didn't want the gift. And that's not the right point of that passage. He doesn't want your gift if you bring it to Him without faith. So my encouragement to you wouldn't be, you know what, wherever you're at in your life, just, just do a little bit of something and God's going to love it. Just do a little bit, and whatever you have. Because look, at this boy had two fish and look what God did. The boy did this by faith knowing that God could do whatever he wanted with it. And that's why God accepted it. What do you have? We ought to worship. We ought to worship God with what we have. We ought to worship him, not just give him what we have. We ought to worship him with what we have. It's different to say, I have this time, and so I'm going to dedicate it to you, and saying, I have this time, so I'm going to worship you with it. I'm going to learn how you desire to be worshipped with my time, and I'm going to dedicate my life to worshiping you with my time. I'm going to learn how you desire to be worshipped with my treasure, and I'm going to worship you with my treasure. I'm going to figure out how you desire to be worshipped as a husband, as a wife, to my family, and I'm going to worship you in that role. Not just dedicate it to you, 
and hope that you like it, but worship you by faith. So let's look at what you have. You have your body. You have your words. You have your time. You have your money. You have your very life. You have your marriage. My question is, is it an act of worship? Is your marriage, your relationship with your spouse an act of worship? You have your family. Is your relationship with your kids an act of worship to God? You have your job. Is it an act of worship? You have your studies. Is your studies an act of worship? Are your studies an act of worship? Those are good questions to ask. You could worship God in your calling. And by faith, we bring it all to God. We're not just going to say, God, you've given me this, and so a little bit I'm going to give to you because you've been good to me this year. We're going to say, God, everything that I have, I'm worshiping you with it. Everything is from you, and so I'm going to worship you with it. Before you know your life and everything in it becomes a living offering to God, and that's what Paul says, that we ought to be a living offering, a living sacrifice to God. God does not approve us because we worship him. He approves us so that we can worship him. And that's what we need to learn. And thirdly is guard the door. Guard the door. This was a reference to the crouching tiger at the door, right? The, crouch, the sin that's crouching at the door waiting to uh, desire us, to take over us. The door is a metaphor for whatever we let, we let into our life, right? Evidence that we're guarding the door well. Here's some evidence that you might be guarding the door well. You've considered the temptations of being involved in a certain thing. You know the dangers of, of that thing if you're going to go and be a part of it. You foresee the dangers and you've asked God for wisdom in that situation. So you say, I know the temptation if I go to this house or go spend time with this person or engage in this kind of thing. And so, not that God's calling me to not go there, but I know the dangers and so I'm going to be actively involved in knowing the wisdom of God, discerning how I'm supposed to act in that situation so that I'm not overtaken by sin. If you consider those things before you're involved in things like that, then that's a good sign that you are guarding the door. The second thing is you arm yourself. The Word of God is, is a weapon for us. It's a weapon of defense against temptation and the lies of the enemy. And I would encourage you to be intimately familiar with what the Bible says. You can't resist sin and know the dangers of sin and do that well and know how, what God desires unless you know God and what He says. You need to be a student of the Word. You need to grow in your understanding of what it says. Here's another thing. When a sin is pointed out in your life, how do you respond? Oops. I think I just stepped on some toes. If someone comes up to you and exposes a sin in your life, do you act like Cain? Do you get angry? Do you get insecure? Do you get defensive? And do you want to kill that person? (laughs) If we are guarding the door, then we realize the difference between the sin and the person who exposes that sin. Do you respond with humility when someone points it out, or anger like Cain? Do you hate the right things? Do you love the right things? Do you know the difference between those things? Those are, I encourage you to know those dif- the differences there. If someone comes and exposes a sin in your life, that's a gift that that person's given you. Look at what could have been spared for Cain if he would have looked at the gift and the grace of God to come to him. How awesome is that? Now, Cain did not sin by being angry. The anger was a temptation. He sinned when he acted out on it. He's allowed to be angry. 
And God did not accuse him of sinning at that point. When he was angry, he came and he looked at him and said, it looks like you're being tempted. It looks like you're angry. I could see it on your face. And he said, don't do it. You've got to get control of this. And it just it spun Cain in just more anger, more bitterness, more resentment. And he killed his brother. And lastly, here it is, is get heroes and be a hero. Get heroes and be a hero. It's a great time this weekend, this week. We celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. He's a hero. We look at this man who was courageous. You know, Paul talks to a young man named Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he says, he talks about his life and, and about why he's encouraged by what he's done. And he says, I've finished the faith, faith. I've finished the race. I've lived the faith. I've, I've, I've continued and I've been courageous. And I have done it all by faith. We see this man, Martin Luther King Jr., and how he's transformed a whole country because of his courage, because of his faith in God. He's a hero. And so it is good for us to have people in our life. You need to have heroes of the faith. And that's why we're going down this list of people in Hebrews 11 and looking at who are these heroes that we can be like, that we can imitate, that we can look at their faith and say, I want to be like that person. You should have people like that. And second, you should be a hero to other people. It's a lot easier to have heroes, right? It's a lot easier to look at people and say, I want to be like you. It's a lot harder for have people to say that about us. And you and I should be those kinds of people that are heroes of faith for others. If you have kids, teach your kids how to worship God by faith. Teach them now. Teach them. It doesn't matter how young they are. Cain and Abel were, grew up in their parents. They were taught how to worship God, to go and, hey, take your gift, take what you have and go and go to God and, and worship God and Teach your kids how to do that. Imitate men and women who imitate Christ. Abel left a legacy. His faith still speaks today. What will your faith speak about? What will your, what will your heart speak about? For people that come after you, for your family, for your friends that witness that. If we walk by faith, we worship God, we have confidence that He looks at us and, he's a, and He approves us. And that's a great thing. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.